This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Pandemic Planet, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. I'm Catherine Bliss, a senior fellow with the center, and I'm joined today by Dr. Asaf Bitan, assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Asaf is a primary healthcare practitioner and serves as executive director of Ariadne Labs, a health system innovation center associated with both the Brigham and Women's, as well as the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and which is focused on saving lives and reducing suffering by creating scalable solutions to improve healthcare delivery at the most critical moments to people in the United States and around the world. And I should also add that Asaf is a member of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. Asaf, welcome and Happy New Year. Well, thank you so much and Happy New Year to you and your listeners. Thank you. So we're here today, January 4th, 2021, to talk about primary health care and its relationship to health security particularly global health security. But I think it's fair to say that primary care is not always an obvious focus of analysis for people who work on issues related to public health emergencies, pandemic preparedness, disease surveillance, outbreak response, et cetera. In fact, the CSIS Commission in its first incarnation didn't explicitly focus on primary care at all. So I'd like to start by asking you to tell me about your intellectual and professional journey working on these issues. How did you find yourself attracted to primary health care and deciding to specialize in this field? Well, you know, I, I started my interest in health and global health during and after college, where I worked in the Samoan Islands, both in American Samoa and in the independent country of Samoa, on issues related to public health, especially around the rise of non-communicable diseases in low-income countries, and why in particular the Pacific region and Samoa in particular had such high rates of obesity and diabetes. And so I was doing work in public health, and we were doing a set of longitudinal studies and looking at the relative contributions of environmental and genetic factors to these various non-communicable diseases. And I found it fascinating, and I found it important. And I also remember working in villages in which we would hike up a mountain and do our research with Simone public health nurses, and then see enormous care needs, enormous primary care needs, enormous secondary care needs, and a feeling of just general frustration that the research was important, but disconnected from the needs of the people in front of me and understanding their experiences. And so I'm a fairly pragmatic person. And so I decided after also doing some work in health policy in DC that I would go to medical school. And the short answer is that for me in medical school, primary care was really the bridge between my interests in public health 
and in taking care of individual patients. It has both a community lens, uh, a social and social determinants lens, and also a deep angle around how you understand and walk with a person, their family, their community, the journey of health creation, the journey of life in its highs and its lows, and how do you basically create a long-term healing relationship. That's the goal of primary care. And and primary care has core functions around access and continuity, comprehensiveness and coordination. And when those functions are met, individual health improves, community health improves, and actually health systems outcomes improve. And I found that both fascinating and inspiring. And then I also found the challenges that face primary care and achieving those lofty ideals also really interesting. And so that's how I basically merged a career of being a primary care physician, a leader of primary care teams and primary care system development. I've worked at Medicare on primary care payment and then a lot of global health on how we measure and improve primary health care at the national and, and global level. So you're a professor. You have a primary health care practice there in Boston. You also direct Ariadne Labs, and you're focused on issues from the neighborhood in Boston all the way to Estonia and Ghana and Costa Rica. So first of all, I guess, how do you balance all of those issues? But second of all, how, how does what you're learning about what's happening overseas and what's happening, happening in the U.S., how do those issues inform each other? And how do you... Um, how do you blend what you're learning from the experience in the United States with, with what you see happening overseas? It's a great question. Sometimes, some days I ask myself uh, <laughs> those exact questions too, like how, how and why am I doing all of these things? The short answer is that there is a continuum both from a service perspective, um, and I am very service-minded and focused on um, serving communities. And I always know on you know, every day I do primary care because we're now connected electronically. So I'm talking to my patients just about every day. I'm seeing them in clinic on some days. I'm helping work with my primary care teams on other days and then our research and innovation teams. And so what I learned from that is in the practice of primary care, in the practice of taking care of acute chronic, preventive, promotive, and and end-of-life issues, and really walking with patients in their journey, I feel at, at a very basic level that there's no wasted day, that I'm of service, whether it's helping someone with their blood pressure, um, diagnosing a new undiagnosed syndrome, coordinating their cancer care, have, helping them recuperate from surgery, or helping them face the consequences of structural inequity and racism in their community, that is deeply gratifying work. It's work that's done over time. It's not um, the heroic, uh, you know, you swoop in like you're in the ER and save somebody. You do save a lot of people. In fact, our impact is great, but the work is slow and sequential and it informs our other work at all levels. What we learn from working in a neighborhood informs our ability to say something cogent and and helpful and relevant on a national and international basis. What countries that do primary health care well, like Costa Rica and Ghana and Estonia, teach us about the ways in which they organize, finance, and deliver care are very translatable to many of the issues that bedevil us in the United States. And so I like spanning those that continuum. I'm a generalist by trade and practice. I try to think and act broadly and borrow from disciplines. And I do 
really enjoy and find deeply resonant the connections between an innovation in northern Ghana around how to set up community health worker-based care and how it improves population health and and how and what that implication might be in an urban American community facing different issues in context, but similar issues at their core. So thinking about the the international dimensions, you know, the concept of primary care as a way of attaining health for all was really enshrined at the Alma-Ata conference in 1978. The Millennium Development Goals had an implicit focus on primary health care, and then the Sustainable Development Goals from 2015 have incorporated a more explicit emphasis, at least through Goal 3, and the focus on universal health coverage. Then, of course, in 2018, the Declaration of Astana really recognized primary health care as the most effective path to universal health coverage. So I wanted to ask you to, if you could explain this relationship between primary health and universal health coverage. You talked a bit about financing and some of the innovations that you've seen in some of the key countries you all are looking at. You know, what is that relationship? And can you explain some of the factors that have kept this discussion so relevant? And really, sometimes it seems like constantly making the argument over and over again about primary health over the last 40 plus years. You know, what what are the issues that keep this foremost, but also having to kind of make that argument over and over again? Yeah, primary health care at its core, and as it's been redefined you know, by the Astana Declaration of 2018, is really about the intersection of three important areas. It's the intersection of the delivery of essential primary care and public health functions in an integrated way. And that's what we generally think about as primary care. You know, those primary care services, clinical services, community health worker services, preventive, promotive services. But how we get from primary care to primary health care is really in engaging two other big areas. Number one is engaging the intersection of the delivery of those services with other multi-sectoral policies and actions that promote health. And in the third part, how we engage and empower people and communities in the delivery, receipt, and promotion of healthcare. So that helps to expand the field of view from just you know, how do we have a clinic with four walls that delivers some blood pressure and immunizations and coordination of care, which is critical to what are the policies set forth in a community and in a country to promote or not promote health across sectors and how are communities engaged or not engaged, empowered or disempowered to create health. We have as our base with the Sustainable Development Goals, universal health coverage. And the connection between universal health coverage and primary health care, you can start to see when you take this broad view of what primary health care looks like as being a great overlap with each other. You can't really have universal health coverage without good primary health care, and you can't really have good primary health care without universal health care coverage. By that, I mean, there has to be an equitable distribution and access to at very base, avoidance of catastrophic financial burden due to health care needs. And that's where universal health care coverage comes from. But the critical question of what will you pay for when you buy this coverage should and has to start with primary health care, or we go down a route of buying expensive, inequitable, unjust systems that don't meet the majority of their population's needs. So there's a duality, an interplay between universal health coverage and primary health care that's so important and that only becomes more important 
when we start seeing the world is even more interconnected and more integrated with things like the pandemic, where you realize that the dismissal or lack of connection of formal public health services or the fragmentation of public health services from healthcare services really becomes quite a risky proposition. And then, of course, the corollary, which is that countries and locales that are able to integrate their public health and healthcare services through primary care do better and are able to both see pandemics as they come faster, respond to them and bounce back faster and deliver those essential services better. Well, so I want to turn to the pandemic here for a second. It's, it's January 4th and we're about a year into this. Now, back in the spring, when countries were instituting lockdown rules, and there was so much that was unknown about this virus, health resources were frequently diverted from routine care to outbreak response. And at the same time, even in places where clinics remained open, people were often afraid to visit health facilities out of fear of becoming infected. And we still read about this today. I mean, this didn't end, you know, just in the spring, but it was something that, that began to be reported at that point. So, you know, this question I have really has two parts. I mean, the first is, how do you assess the short, kind of medium, and, and even longer-term impacts of the pandemic on people's health-seeking behavior, particularly around routine and preventive services? And then secondly, you started to touch on this in your previous answer, but, you know, what role have primary health care facilities really played in responding to the pandemic? Do you see that, as we look ahead, there will be an even stronger case to be made for the connection between primary care and health security. Yeah, so a huge set of interrelated issues there. And, and the good thing is we now finally have a little bit of data to sort of match some of our conjecture. So in terms of the impact um, globally that we've seen on healthcare service use, both supply and demand, we have, we have better data supply, but of course, they're intimately related. So the WHO had a survey of over 100 countries in the fall looking at the continuity of essential health services. And what they found is that in over 60% of countries surveyed, outpatient services had been suspended or significantly limited, whereas only about 8 to 12% of emergency services had been at the same time. And, and within the outpatient services, the biggest drop-off that was seen, in which almost half the country said that all services were at least partially or fully disrupted, were in non-communicable disease control, mental health, and then third to that was in reproductive and maternal and child health. And so what we see is a sort of systems that grind to a halt, especially in the delivery of non-communicable disease care, chronic care. Chronicity can be both for non-communicable and communicable diseases, you know, TB and HIV delivery programs get disrupted. And we see of course, emergency services generally, you know, privilege. And that on one level makes sense. But on another level, I think that there's buried in there a real risk. And we're starting to see the unfortunate fruits of that risk, which is that it's been true for many, many pandemics that as many or more people are harmed, suffer or are killed by the disruption in essential services. I don't like using the word basic because that implies simple, stupid, routine. Turns out like the greatest causes of disease, morbidity, mortality are 
are basic things like blood pressure control and malaria and diabetes and other things. Now, they're not all that basic, but they're essential. And when those essential services do get disrupted, people die and suffer unnecessarily. And we're seeing that. So one one statistic that, that I think really sticks in my mind is the Gates Foundation has estimated that take one key immunization, which is DTP, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, the critical immunization happens in the first year of life. You need three doses. Within 25 weeks of the start of the pandemic, 25 years worth of progress around the world in attaining better coverage of this essential trio of vaccines was lost. So before the pandemic, we were at about 84% coverage. 25 weeks into the pandemic, we were down to levels of coverage that we hadn't seen since 1990, like in the 60s and 70%. That is a knowable, massive dividend of negative health results that we will be seeing for years on end due to that disruption of services. And it highlights the fact that, yes, we needed to respond to COVID PPE hospital-based efforts, but the idea that the response has to be predicated on building ventilators and ICU teams at the expense of all of these essential services is where things start falling apart. We've seen it in the U.S. We know that 40 to 50 percent of chronic and preventive services have been disrupted in primary care. There's a huge backlog of preventive services and, and people not seeking care for key new diagnoses. And we'll be dealing with that backlog as we already are for, for the next few years. So do you see any kind of, I guess, silver lining at all in the experience of the pandemic in terms of, you know, being able to maybe make an even stronger case for that connection with health security? I mean, do you see people talking in this way or is that something that you think will come kind of later after the dust has settled, so to speak? As an interminable optimist, I always see the potential for crisis to breed opportunities, as everyone seems to talk about. But in it, all joking aside, there are huge opportunities here that really we would be wise to listen to. And I think they fall into three big areas. The first is this pandemic shows that this artificial distinction that we, especially in high income countries like the U.S., have between public health functions and healthcare systems, those connections information-wise, delivery-wise, service-wise, we set those distinctions up at our great peril. The good thing, the opportunity there, is that we already have a ready mechanism of connection between our strong inpatient healthcare systems. We do rescue really, really well in the U.S. We rescue, I mean, it's, it's incredible. I could tell you stories of so many of my patients that once they've gotten to the hospital, incredibly sick with COVID, like absurdly sick, our ICU systems are incredible. And yet we still do not have basic PPE distribution to community clinics. We still do not have basic information flows, both for COVID surveillance, but also for vaccine delivery and plans for vaccine delivery that if we had a functioning connection, a bridge between public health and healthcare systems that primary care could play, it would serve us so well. I think the second huge silver lining that we've seen from the pandemic is that we've understood that we can deliver care differently in a fast and effective way nearly overnight. And that's not just with telemed and virtual care, but with all sorts of new mechanisms of care delivery, such as home hospital. The idea that you could take a fourth 
of medical admissions and safely treat them with the right care teams at home, thereby reducing the burden on hospitals and letting them care for the sickest patients. And then finally, I think that the lesson inherent in all of this is really around investment and what we prioritize for the future. Do we want to prioritize rescue functions only? Big glassy hospitals and ICU functions and ventilator stockpiles to wait to withstand the shocks of knowable future pandemics? Or do we build in parallel systems of community surveillance that build the trust and capacities necessary at the community level to mitigate the the effects of these pandemics before they need to reach the hospital, to help people contact trace and isolate at home and do all of the things that are necessary and reduce the negative dividend of loneliness and continue the provision of essential care services so that the overall calculus of suffering that these pandemics bring can be reduced. And I think that we know we need to invest not just in the high tech and sort of rescue functions, but also in the promotive, incremental and connective functions that primary care and public health has. So in the last month, several countries around the world have begun authorizing the new COVID-19 vaccines for use, you know, for emergency use. Here in the U.S., policymakers have fretted about vaccine hesitancy on the one hand, and at the same time, the demand would outstrip supply. Headlines this past weekend emphasized that while the vaccines are now available here in the U.S., they're not being distributed quickly enough, or there's confusion. People are trying to get on websites that are crashing. They don't know where to go, you know, et cetera. I know Ariadne Labs has been involved in a couple of different efforts related to COVID vaccines, and one is a tool to help states and localities operationalize distribution. Another is the, the find your place in the vaccine line tool where anyone can plug in their age and health status and maybe zip code, I think, or at least where they live and find out where they are on the list. And my husband and I did, and we learned we would be something like 92nd and 93rd in line, which I guess is a good thing. Um, it certainly helped us set our expectations about when we'd be likely to get shots, you know, when they're available here in D.C., But my question here has to do with some issues you've already raised here about helping the public, whether in the United States or elsewhere, be informed about health in general and COVID and COVID vaccines in particular. And, you know, I just would ask you to say a bit about the role of primary care in not just treating patients, but educating patients and the community at large about health and vaccine issues and the ways in which situating care at the community level helps to build trust in the health system and in vaccines. You know, oftentimes when I talk to policymakers, both in the U.S. and and abroad and and explain to them why they can't afford not to invest more in primary care, I talk really about one of the outcomes that primary care is really good at producing is trust. And trust has been in very short supply, especially in the U.S. um, over these last 10 months. The politicization of science and of all the discourse around this virus has really eroded in so many concerning ways, both our response to it before a vaccine and our ability to deliver a vaccine now that we have at least two effective ones and more likely on the way. And, you know, vaccines are totally useless unless they get into people's arms. They're just a figment of interesting scientific imagination. And so that last mile of delivering vaccines has to happen in large part 
through a trusted mechanism. And you can have public service campaigns and you can have celebrities and politicians get the vaccine. And that's helpful. But most people that have hesitancy and hesitancy is not always a bad thing. You know, people have hesitancy for lots of reasons. And most ways to get past hesitancy is not just through shoving information in people's faces. It's through getting your questions answered by someone or some people whom you trust. I've been part of a national weekly survey of both patients and primary care physicians, and patients say that amongst the top group of any professionals that they trust is their primary care team on issues of vaccines and lots of other areas. And so if we want to deliver this well, we have to both figure out the logistics and, quite frankly, see this as a 24-7 operation that we need to invoke the Defense Production Act and see this as our great calling of a nation, public and private sectors coming together over these next six months and doing everything possible, including Sundays and weekends and late at night to get this done through a coordinated mechanism that honors our federal, state and heterogeneous structure of healthcare and public health. But we can do this and we can do it through effective channels like primary care that already have that dividend of trust built in and are ready to spend that currency to explain to people why this is important, why it's not, why their fears are not going to be met, and why this can help them, their families, and their communities be healthy, get back to work, and get us back to whatever normal-ish life exists in the future. That that has to be a campaign that cannot just be outsourced or sort of fragmented to one sector or the other. It has to involve one of the few remaining areas of non-politicized trust, which is primary care. It's not going to only be in primary care. It can be delivered through pharmacies. It can be delivered in stadiums through mass vaccinations. But we still, a large part of the work, especially to the people who need this the most, the people with multiple chronic conditions and who live in environments of crowded housing, that's going to require that connection that 70% of people in the U.S. have, which is to their primary care providers. So as you think back over the past year and look ahead another 10 to 12 months or 18 months into the future, what are the kind of one or two innovations in practice that have emerged really out of necessity in the face of the quarantines and lockdowns that you hope will stick around for the long term? I know you've mentioned some about telemedicine and home hospital care. You know, are there one or two others that you hope will stick around? And, you know, I guess I would ask you to consider as you think about your own practice as a primary care physician, how do you see your approach to patient care and the work that you all are doing at Ariadne Lab, thinking about these issues in a systemic way? How do you think some of these issues will will change for the better as a result of the pandemic? You know, I find in the world of innovation that What's privileged and when we talk about innovation are gadgets, things that are new, orthogonal ways of thinking, and they are definitely innovative. The innovations that I find most interesting often have to do with things that are slow, sometimes that that are systemic and that stick. And so when I think about some of the lessons that I'm going to take from this fascinating and trying period, I think about not just the thing, which is, let's say, telehealth and virtual care or Zoom, but rather the fact that within, I'm not even going to say two weeks, within a week, 10 days, most, certainly my health system, most health systems I'm familiar with were able to incorporate and get most of their patients 
onto a completely new service platform and using it to do most of the good work that had been done, not in a total replacement. Zoom consultations do not completely replace in-person. But, you know, in medicine, in primary care, we've been spending the last 10 or 15 years kind of having these really boring and maddening debates and discussions about why we couldn't do more online or more telemed or more, you know, always had to be a 15 or 20 minute visit coded the certain way. You wait an hour in the waiting room. And, you know, within a week, it changes. If we can capture that ability to cross sectors, do what's necessary and do it quickly into so many other areas that ail our health system. And, you know, we've seen incredibly heroic work. You know, hospitals transform themselves into COVID wards, stop elective surgeries nearly overnight, restart them in the summer, catch up backlogs, you know, get cancer therapy to the people that need it, even in the midst of COVID. There's incredible systemic process ingenuity in that. It's never going to be contained in a gadget or gizmo, but that is world changing. And so like, if I think about the things that are most inspiring to me in primary healthcare, it's those countries like Costa Rica and Ghana that have been able to sustain a pace of systemic change and high performance for years through a variety of political, financial service delivery mechanisms. And I think about that to our own system. I mean, what is the core, one of the core problems besides inequity that befall our American healthcare system is its inability to innovate the way that it does things, not on a technological basis, there's second to none on that, but on a process basis. And so if we can overnight change the provision of most of outpatient care across the US, and it's mostly for the better, and now it's some new hybrid, and that's fantastic, that really suggests that the shackles that limit our creativity and innovation are really within us as systems and as organizers and as uh, people and not some external factors like we can actually build better more equitable more just more effective health systems in a year if we wish to do it the question then becomes do we have the political will do we have the leadership do we have the ideas and the creative spirit to do it and i find that actually very exciting so can we take the lessons from a crisis and really apply them for, for the long term? With the lens toward communities, prevention, equities, you know, instead of just focusing, as we always do in the U.S., on fast innovations, you know, the again, the gadgets, the technologies, the rescues, the, the, the heroic moments, can we also focus on on thinking slowly and systemically and community-oriented wise. And fast and slow are not good and bad. They're just different ways of knowing and thinking. And I think that this pandemic teaches us that if we don't think in parallel in both directions at the same time, one cannot meet all of the needs by itself. You can't just have an ICU-based, technologically marvelous system and then have a pandemic wash over it. But you also, it, once a pandemic hits you, you can't just have a community-based preventive promoted primary care system without a rescue function because they need to both be in there in this dynamic duality to meet all of the needs and inspire the confidence and trust of a population and a health system that can get it through its most dire moments as we've seen this year. 
Well, Dr. Asaf Bitan, I hope that we can come back to you in 10 to 12 to 18 months to see how some of these lessons have been pulled together and see how they're being applied in the slow or, or the fast way as, as things move forward. Thank you very much for joining me today and good luck with your many endeavors in 2021. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 